urban in Māori. They had left everything that they knew, so they were stuck in these cities. Today, 85% of us live in urban places. Something about Wellington draws me in. I am a city girl. They had to go to the city because they were shifted there. In this concrete jungle, in the urban sprawl, what is it that keeps us grounded? My tupuna have been thriving here for many generations. I'm Māori wherever I go. My name is Kahukutia and this is He Kākanoa Hau, weaving together strands of connection for Māori in the city. My parents raised my brother and I in Waimana, a small valley on the northern edge of Te Urewera. After 18 years of small town life, I came to Wellington, where suddenly everything was bigger, faster and more urgent. But Wellington's pretty tiny compared to where we're heading now. In this episode, we're in Tāmaki Heringawaka, Tāmaki Makoto, known to some as Auckland City. Auckland always makes me feel a little bit anxious. Street after street of high-rise buildings, all the highways weaving in and out. In Auckland, you could probably drive for an hour in any direction and still be in a suburban neighbourhood. But Auckland didn't always look like this. We forget that every city sits on Māori land. One of the mana whenua here in Tāmaki Makoto is Ngāti Whātua. Who better to ask what an iwi identity looks like when your whenua is the city and you a host of people from all across Aotearoa and the world? This is episode 4 of He Kaka Noaho, Mana Whenua. So we're in the CBD by the docks. I can see Spark Arena across the road. I'm looking for Fairawa, which is the commercial arm of Ngāti Whātua. Takes me a while to find the door. Is there another entrance? That's the same place, eh? Pretty funny considering I'm talking about visibility in the city for Mana Whenua. Fairawa manages the asset base for Ngāti Whātua, and I know that in central Auckland alone, they have 167 hectares of land. Narimu Blair is one of the directors of Fairawa, and he's an udi of Ngāti Whātua. Ko waitamata te moana, maunga kia kia te maunga, ko tūpiriri te tangata, te tau ngāho te uringotu ngā hapu ko Ngāti Whātua te iwi, ko Ngārimu Blair, ahau. All of our cities in this country have been designed in a way to destroy us. Our vegetation has been replaced and our towns and cities have been made to look like the motherland and that's not Tumana Nuiakiwa or Hawaii, it's England. <laughs> so, that other place. <laughs> yeah, and that's very deliberate. We were never meant to be here. Um, it was part of the great plans of colonisation and imperialism that um, we would eventually be gone. So these places totally look like England. The street layouts, the street names, the buildings, the architecture... Um, the biodiversity, everything. Our streams piped, our puna covered over. So the city doesn't look Māori. However, the land still speaks, uh, the rivers and the springs still bubble away if you know how to, how to interpret the landscape. So it's our great challenge, um, our generations, to bring those kōrero back and then to humbly share them with others and empower them as well so that our cities and towns can be designed in a much more um, inclusive manner so that particularly our young Māori and Pacifica can find some pride and mana in the places that they, they move through. And also Pākehā people too, who are also searching for a, 
a way to fill a bit of a void that they may have because they've become disconnected from England and trying to make sense of their place in Aotearoa. Well, on that note, I think you offered to take us around a yeah. few places, so it'd be awesome to get some perspective on kind of what the corridor is right here in the heart of Auckland City. Kapai. So this is um, Beach Road. It's called Beach Road because it used to be the beach. So all of this was all beautiful sandy bays. So this area is called Te Ahurutanga, which means the sheltered place. Just over across there, which is um, now used by New Zealand Transport Authority and the police, they pull the trucks over, bring them in and inspect them, expect the driver's logs and the tyres and the loads and all of that. However, before Pākehā arrived, there was a village here called Waipapa, a seasonal fishing village used by our tūpuna. And then when Pākehā arrived and the settlers were settling mainly in uh, the Queen Street Valley, this was where they would come to trade with us. We would have hundreds and hundreds of waka from as far away as Ngāti Porau and Ngāti Maniopoto and the Coromandel. They would all come here, pull up their waka and then set up all of their stalls selling their produce. Bushels of wheat, pigs, coal, quinces, watermelons, peaches, apples. And these are all the things our tupuna were selling to the settlers. This market was dominated by Māori, uh, dominated by Ngāti Whātua and Ngāti Pāwa, who sent hundreds of wakas here every year. And the way we dominated the port here is we could undercut any settler entrepreneur. And that was because we didn't have any labour costs. We were a community. To be a part of the community, you had to work in the gardens, you had to go and fetch the pigs, you had to go, you know. But the settlers came here with their tikanga, which was individuals, nuclear families, and they needed to pay wages. So their costs of production were much, much higher, so we could easily run them out of business. Today it's a slab of asphalt. But this is one of the most important sites in Tāmaki in that period between us working out how we live together with Pākehā. And we were pretty good at adopting Pākehā capitalism mm. and bending it to our communalism. Governor Gray didn't like that. The Empire didn't like that. So their next strategy was to break us, which was the invasion of Waikato, Taranaki, Eastern Bay of Plenty, confiscation of three million plus acres of land, then divvied out to all of the settlers. From 1860, yeah, we had the pinch of the land loss, no more trading. It was uh, really the start of our, our big demise from the 1860s. The arrival of Pākehā was prophesied by Ngāti Whātua, they have a mortetia that talks about the arrival of a strange wind and a final stand to take place above the Waitimata Harbour. That final stand did take place at Takaparafa, or Bastion Point, in the late 70s. It's where I'm heading next. I've been here once before. It blew my mind then, and it blows my mind now to be standing here where one of the most significant struggles for our people took place. Today, Ngāti Whātua plant kumara on multi-million dollar land. Orake is their home. 
a place to be Māori in this huge city. So we've just come to uh, Orake Marae. You can see the Sky Tower in the distance and the kind of central CBD. It's pretty beautiful out here. Like if you look, if you look to your right, you can see the city. But then looking out left, all I can see is islands and water and green grass. We've come to meet Hana Maihi, so we're going to go see where Hana is. She said, told us to meet her in the admin buildings at the Popokainga, so we're going to go see if we can find her. <laughs> at 28, Hana Maihi is the youngest member on the Marae Committee. Yes, please. She's a climate activist and artist. She's also doing her PhD on the effects of climate change on Māori and the Maramataka. I'm wondering if Hana Mahi considers herself urban Māori. Yeah, I don't like that term. But, yeah, we are. We're in, in an urban environment. We're lucky to have a thriving marae that's still here. And our very existence is active resistance to all the people that tried to squash us and decimate us. And I love being here and I love being Māori in the city. It's not always easy, but... Definitely, yeah, have a lot to be thankful for. On May 25th, 1978, 222 people were removed from Bastion Point. On the night of the eviction, this news report went to air. Bastion Point was occupied for a total of 506 days. The police operation was mounted with a methodical thoroughness that amazed onlookers. The police arrived in convoys of army trucks and buses and entered the land in squads marching four abreast. They then spread out around the meeting house on the point, forming a tight cordon with other police standing in the background as a reserve. Whether you leave peacefully and with dignity, or whether you are forcibly removed, is a decision for you to make. This is how the protesters reacted to that. In the face of police threats, a young activist by the name of Joe Hawke held strong to his vision. At about midday, the protest leader, Mr Joe Hawke, arrived back from a trip to Wellington. After a tearful greeting from supporters, he told the crowd outside the gates that the government's actions were a form of creeping fascism, and he said he hoped to take the protesters' case to the United Nations. Mr Hawke later told reporters they would be back on the land. We will build a marae again. On the land? On the land. The government has engineered a horrendous, imbecile act upon the mana of our people. They've desecrated a sacred marae. Joe Hawke may well have been right when he told his supporters today was only the beginning. The marae that Matua Joe Hawke mentions was eventually built, and today is a place that welcomes thousands of people every year. I can absolutely understand and, and be totally grateful for the stand that our whanau made, Joe Hawke. He put his life on the line, he put his whole whanau and career on the line so that our generation can have what we have now. I think that's huge and it definitely puts my life in perspective around what I give energy and time and support to. But I also think it's a really good reminder for our generation to go, what are you prepared to fight for? What do you stand for? I don't know if we really know that or if that's a question we're asking ourselves. But it's definitely timely that we start asking that. You know, history repeats and we're seeing Ihumatao and and the occupation out there and it's just like one and the same, erua, erua. So did you grow up here? 
Yeah, I grew up just down the road. Spent pretty much my whole life here in Aldarke, which was awesome. It was amazing growing up here. I think not just only being so close to our whenua here at Takapatafo, but growing up with your cousins next door, you know, like literally sharing the sugar and kai, if you've got any kai left over. <laughs> we used to do these trolley doobies every year in summer. We used to have hangi in our backyards. That was like our way of connecting and whakawhanaungatanga and, you know, if there's a tangi, roll on up, pull up your sleeves. I remember doing the dishes not really knowing, you know, who's kissing your face, but you just know that <laughs> you're, you're related to them. <laughs> and it's been awesome to see how everyone within your um, iwi has grown and changed over time. But also, yeah, how the city's changed. It's changed drastically. Do you mean like it's changed drastically since even you were a kid? Yeah, well, you know, just getting, I'm getting nostalgic and I can remember the Chinese markets that used to be where Britomart was like big warehouses, like grungy as It's a lot more bougie <laughs> today. It's choice, but yeah, definitely I think it's hard to sometimes see yourself in these landscapes and see how we as Māori are appreciated, but also how our histories and our um, cultures acknowledged. And that's been something that I've been like actively advocating for across design and architecture so that we're not in a Sydney, we're not in a Melbourne we're in Tamaki Makoto. <laughs> Tamaki Heringawaka, the meeting place of many canoes. It's a very well-known whakatoki that you'll hear around here. Um, it speaks to the coalescing of many people because it was such a fertile land. It was really sought after in Tamaki Makoto, the land of many lovers. It's still, yeah, just as relevant today, I think. <laughs> All the uni students. <laughs> Back out on the streets of Tamaki Makoto, Narimu takes us up a hill towards the university. The streets begin to feel less confusing and more familiar. Here's a chief from one of the other tribes. <laughs> Get that email. Yeah. Just like the old days, eh? In a tiny car park off a main road, Narimu shows me something that makes me really appreciate the hidden history of this place. So we're just coming into... Um car park here of the Davis Law Library of the Auckland University we'd be about 100 metres from Beach Road and the sea so we're surrounded by big university buildings but also hotels and a massive flash apartment complex but this area here used to be the freshwater spring that fed all of the central part of the CBD. This is called Te Wai Ariki so the chiefly waters, the very special waters, the water bubbled up here and there's a big freshwater pond that fed everybody around here. So it's still here, but it's um, this hole in the brick wall drains off to stormwater. You can hear it. When the settlers arrived, we used to sell the water to the ships coming in until one day there were too many Pākehā. There's one, one uh, written record of one ship coming and they just pulled out their muskets and said, no, we're not paying you Māoris for any water. And um, that was the end of that. We haven't sold fresh water since. There's another spring in Newmarket, Te Punarerea Maru, Maruiwi. That in time became the water source for Lion Breweries.
do many people from the hapu and the iwi still come here today? More and more. A couple of years ago, our head karakia man for the hapu, he used to get water from another place. And I said, no, no, I've got a better place for you to get wai Māori, wai ora. Him connecting with this place has been huge for his, his own identity and his own modi, knowing that that's still there, albeit behind a brick wall. It's predicted that Auckland City will reach 2 million people by 2025. And to accommodate that growth requires a lot of mahi. All around us I can see cranes and hear construction sounds. Auckland is stretching further and further in every direction. We just know that the numbers are going to astronomically grow and already we're kind of bursting at the seams. That growth is Tawiwi Pākehā, it's a diverse and multicultural migrant community, it's Pacific peoples and it's also those Māori who have moved to the city from rural areas. I think for me and Hana, what we're thinking about here is sustainability and how we share and consume resources, but also how you manaki all those extra people as kaitiaki of this place. My whakaro really rests with the whenua and papatuanuku and how we're really going to do our best to look after what we've got. The tonga that we do have left that we haven't already ruined and how our generation can make sure that we're not leaving a kind of shitty, messed up legacy, but it's something worth fighting for seven generations down. The reality is that we've decimated the majority of our flora and fauna here in Tamaki Makoto, which breaks my heart that we've lost so much of that heritage and the portals for connecting to those spaces. But it doesn't mean that it's not there, and I think, if anything, it's just, yeah, we're having to find new ways to connect or maintain those connections and, and uphold our kaitiakitanga um, responsibilities in what ways we can. Te Wai Ariki is just one of the many puna and streams hidden below the city. After all, the land of Tamaki Makoto is volcanic and porous all the way across. Even here, amongst glass skyscrapers, sacred water flows from up on the hill to the harbour below. So right in the heart of Auckland CBD, coming up to Queen Street, but where we're heading to is pretty much the mouth of the Horotu stream at this intersection on Queen Street. The fresh water that would come from the Karangahape Ridge, a spring up there would flow down through here and then out into the Waitapata. And about here is where we had a waka landing site. So on a uh, mid-tide, you could, you could paddle up to here, hop off your waka, walk where we're walking right now. We follow the old shoreline just around the corner to Fort Street. When Governor Gray took over, Dr Rangi Nui Walker calls him the hitman of colonisation. He had a propaganda machine in the media making all the settlers suspicious of Māori, of Waikato, of Ngāpuhi in particular, and mainly because the Kingitanga had a new policy of not selling land, Pupuri Whenua. And so Gray came in, told everyone... Uh, these Māoris are uh, planning to attack Auckland, use the PR machine that they had to justify getting the budgets to import 11,000 imperial troops from uh, around the empire. So at that time, 
from 1863, our chief, Takawo, was very confused. said, well, why aren't we partners? I gave you land and I'm not going to invade you. So Takawo and our people were put under curfew, could only come into the city during the day but had to wear a red chevron sash around the arm to show that they were friendly natives and weren't allowed out of the village at night during that whole period. Takawo's son, Tehira, wrote to the paper of the day, we have heard of your taunts in your newspapers about calling us blackfellows. The blackness lies in our skin, but not in our hearts. So it was a bit of a plea from him to Auckland to chill out. We are your partners and we have no intention of invading. Their real strategy was to separate Māori from as much land as possible, as quickly as possible. So that's why this is called Fort Street. We call it Te One Panea. After battles, this is where we and tribes before us would come to lift people out of their tapu and that state that you needed to get into to do atrocious things and come back to the living. And as part of that, the heads of slain enemies would be staked along the beach here by Sal's Pizza. Arimu holds within him such a strong sense of his own history. The hour I've spent with him brings another level to my perception of this place. Everywhere, little clues as to what was here before the city. This whenua is integral to the identity of Ngāti Whātua. I want to know from Hana what her iwitanga means to her. My heart's just warm inside. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, I guess like going back to my childhood, I wouldn't have understood the word iwitanga, um, but I probably would have felt what that was like, you know, singing on the marae, standing by your nanny's skirts, listening to Fai or being up on our maunga and having my dad point out different wahi and the names of things like that. And whānau, really. To me, it comes back to whānau which I just took for granted. I just thought everyone everyone knew their neighbours. Um, and when I go to friends' houses and I'm like, what, you don't talk to your neighbours? <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> yeah, relationships, really. That was iwitanga for us. Our generation, we've in touch with a button and you're connected. You know, internet has changed the game. But you could argue that we're not visiting those special places or, yeah, the places that we connect to as much as we could. So for me, that's the or that's the challenge, is I want to be able to do that so that I can close that gap for the generations that come after me. Yeah, and I'm just really keen in figuring out how we can get more rangatahi back to our marae and, and comfortable on the marae too. Our rangatahi are descendants of great navigators, scientists, writers, poets, and I really would love for every rangatahi Māori to not only know that, but know that that potential is in them. And I think if people knew that growing up, in the face of all the stories that 
constantly pushed on our rangatahi to be criminals and to be a burden on society. We have to change that narrative. That, that narrative isn't true. And so I love being Māori and I just want others to feel that too. When I look to the future, I see a lot of uncertainty about what the whenua will look like, whether or not our papakainga will be able to support the people, whether or not we will be able to hold close to the knowledge of our tipuna to guide us on the right path forward. Like the other rangatahi at Orake Marae, there's a big burden on Hannah's shoulders, but she seems content with the idea that there is an established path before us and that path can guide us into an unknown future. It was another generation that fought to keep this land for her. And now it's her generation's time to keep that vision, that intergenerational dream, alive for Mokopuna in the decades to come. The question that sticks in my mind from the Bastion Point occupation and all our tupuna that paved the way for us, whether it was the Kohanga Reo movement, fighting for land rights, is if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? Tāmaki Makoto, Tāmaki Herengawaka. It feels good to leave Auckland with a different vision of the whenua beneath my feet. Steep streets become hills, hilltops become pa, and between giant buildings, the roads become valleys that lead to the sea. Tihei Modiora. Coming up in episode 5, at 8pm on Wednesday the 24th of July, I find myself on the last flight of the night to Auckland. Just like Matua Joe Hawk in our Pakeke Fort at Bastion Point, another whenua struggle today has come to a head. The karanga has gone out for people to come and protect the land. With my backpack and my gumboots, I'm making my way to Ihumatao. He Kākanoa Ho is written, researched and hosted by me, Kahukutia. Produced by Francis Morden. Melody Thomas is the editor and production and script consultant. The theme music Rito is composed and performed by Geneva Alexander Masters. Additional music by Maratike, Electric Wire Hustle and Asia. Artwork by Huriana Kōpeke Teaho. Mark Chesterman is the series engineer and Ursula Grace is the executive producer. Archival sound recording in this series is from the RNZ collection at Nga Taonga Sound and Vision. And it's all made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. <laughs>